As the children are being dismissed for Children's Church, let's pray together. Father, you are so glorious. I love to hear the choir sing of you and your glories and your character and who you are. Now, as we open up your word, I just ask that you would speak to us powerfully and clearly. And please help me to just get out of the way of your word. Um, I just publicly confess the sin of my pride and my selfish ambition that always threatens to tangle me up when I preach. Um, I pray that you would destroy that in my heart. And I pray that all of us would be tuned in by your Holy Spirit to your voice. And that you would be changing our hearts. Molding us into the people you would have us to be. And I trust you for this. The power of your word for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's really good to be back preaching to you again. I always miss that very much. Um, don't know if you do, but here I am either way. Um, we're not going to get back into Romans today. We will be getting back into Romans, though. Um, you know, next week is revival. Justin will be here speaking Last week, I was out of town. Ron spoke. Many were in the mountains. Before that, we had a month of messages called Seeking Revival, geared toward preparing us, uh, learning what the Bible has to say about how we can seek revival. So today, my goal is to kind of bridge all of that that we have done, including the crisis assistance discussion, all together with what's to come when Justin comes. Now, if you'll remember, we basically were sticking with 2 Chronicles 7.14 as our springboard verse about seeking revival. You don't have to flip there. We're going to be all over the place in the Bible today. So go ahead and stretch your fingers out. We're going to be flipping to a lot of passages, a lot of scripture. Um, but 2 Chronicles 7.14 basically says, God said, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray... And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear and I'll heal, I'll heal their land. Basically, I'll revive them. So we took those four, uh, seeking humility, prayer, repentance, turning from the wicked ways, and seeking God's face. And we've been studying those, how we might uh, find revival, be refreshed as individuals and as a church and as families. To sum it all up into just a couple of sentences, what we found was seeking revival... For those who are downtrodden and tired and at a dead end and anxious, seeking revival looks like turning from everything else and seeking God, who is seeking us. Seeking revival looks like seeking God who sought us in the person of Jesus Christ. So humility. Humility, we said, was escaping ourselves. We do that in response to Jesus, who... In Philippians chapter 2, it says he did not see equality with God, something to be grasped, but he let go of that and became nothing for our sake. So Jesus was the humble one seeking us. Prayer we do in response to God's word to us first. We have his word here, and Jesus, John chapter 1 tells us, is the word made flesh. He came to us, so prayer is just response language. God's doing all the work to revive us. We're responding. Seeking God, turning from our sin is only possible because in Jesus we are crucified with him. Our old selves dead to sin, alive to God, like Romans 6 said. I'm trying to avoid re-preaching all those sermons. I just want to refresh your memory. 
So my goal today is to connect all those ideas with helping the poor. That may seem random. Like, why is he getting so specific with that? But I think that they are completely connected and that you cannot have one without the other. So my basic premise is seeking God includes seeking the welfare of those in need. Or to put it in another way, disregard for those in need indicates a heart that is dead to God. So that's my basic premise I'm going to try to show you in Scripture. If we're really seeking revival, this is important. Seeking God includes seeking the welfare of the poor. And disregard for the poor indicates a heart that is dead to God. So we're going to tackle this using the humility, prayer, seeking God um, template that we've been looking at. You can flip first to Isaiah 58. We looked at this passage quite a bit. Remember, when people want to humble themselves biblically, often they'll fast, they'll abstain from food, they'll do religious things like that. In Isaiah 58, God is saying to his people, you fast and you do all these religious things, and then you get frustrated when it doesn't seem to work, when I don't seem to be bringing you great revival. Well, here's why. He says in Isaiah 58, starting at verse 6, it's not this The fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard." Before we try to fast in the religious sense, before you hope to accomplish anything with fasting to humble yourselves, God says, first, look to the needs of the poor. He says, those enslaved in wickedness, those oppressed, those who are hungry, those who are homeless, those who are poor, those who are naked, loose them, free them, share your bread with them, welcome them into your home, cover them. No physical fast is going to work until our hearts are oriented correctly toward God and toward people. Now, don't raise your hand because you're supposed to be private about your attempts to fast. But I wonder if you've ever tried to fast and it just didn't seem to work. I'm going to share one instance in which I tried to fast. Even though I know you're not technically supposed to talk about it a lot. but I tried to fast. If anybody's been around me when I am not eating for very long... It gets ugly uh, pretty quick. Um, I, it turns out I'm like borderline hypoglycemic, so I blame it on that. But yeah, I tried to fast, you know, for, for our church, for my family, just to have a time of prayer. And I chose my day off, which is with the kids. No. So I'm like, you already see where it's going. I'm like home with the kids and I'm not eating. I'm trying to make it a fasting kind of prayerful day. And all it produced in me was a hungry rage. <laughs> it did not work. A hypoglycemic rage. It's not my fault. I'm a victim of hypoglycemia. <laughs> and I wonder, why doesn't it work? Why doesn't a lot of our religious stuff seem to work sometimes? You know, there's people who go to church for a while and they leave because it's not, it just doesn't work. 
I'm not feeling revived. Well, there's something to this. Maybe there's something missing, and maybe that piece that's missing has to do with how we're oriented toward those in need. Let's look at prayer. One more verse down in Isaiah 58. It says, after you do all these things, after you feed the hungry and bring the homeless into your house and clothe the naked and free the oppressed, after you do all these things, in verse 9 it says, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Then. It's like then God's ears are more attentive to our prayers. Why? Does that... Does that coincide with how you've understood prayer and God and how gracious he is I find all this kind of startling to be honest with you so as you study prayer what's the first passage that comes to your mind I'll bet for many of you it's the Lord's prayer when Jesus taught us how to pray you can flip there in Matthew chapter 6 very famous People want me to recite the Lord's Prayer, and I've got no problem with that. We should start reciting the Lord's Prayer. Um, One of my main hesitancies is I didn't learn it in King James. I don't know that I'm going to recite it in the same translation as everybody. It makes me feel really awkward. I know that's kind of lame, but um, we can recite it. That's a total side note that I hadn't planned to mention. But As you're flipping to Matthew, um, you know this passage. When he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on. But have you ever noticed the the bigger picture of what Jesus' train of thought is during this teaching? If you think of this whole chapter like a train and each car is a thought and they're all connected to each other. It's interesting. It's interesting when you place it in this context of how seeking God relates to helping the poor. Right before he teaches on prayer... He talks about giving to the needy and how you should do that. And then he says, and when you pray, and he gives instruction on prayer. And then right after that, it says, and when you fast, and he gives instruction on that. And then right after that, it's like he's thinking that there might be some objections to giving to the poor. And he says, well, don't lay up treasures here. Give your money and stuff away. Lay up treasures in heaven. And then right after that, maybe he's aware that people like you might start feeling anxious. Well, if I give all my stuff away, how am I going to clothe myself and eat and live? So right after that, he says, don't be anxious about anything. God provides for the flowers and the birds. He's going to provide for you. Don't worry about your life. And then it goes on into chapter 7. Don't judge people. It's like it's all part of the same lifestyle. Praying is important, but it's part of the same lifestyle as giving to the poor. And they all have this same language of, and when you pray. It's just assumed that we're going to be doing this as Christians. When you pray, pray like this. When you give, give like this. When you fast, fast like this. It's an assumption that this is all part of the Christian life and all connected. So my premise again, seeking God includes seeking the welfare of the poor. And disregard for the poor indicates a heart that is dead to God. I think this will be most clear as we talk about what it means to turn from sin and to seek God. Back in Isaiah, you don't have to flip there. I'll read it to you. In Isaiah chapter 1, God is expressing some really intense dissatisfaction with his people. He's not pleased. And he goes through this list of all the stuff they've been doing. You have these festivals. You have these gatherings. You have these services. You have these offerings that you give to me. 
And he says, but I don't want all that. And I'm not even listening to your prayers. And then he gets to the climax, and here's what he says that they should do. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. That's the repentance. Turn from all this stuff. But he doesn't say turn from all that and worship in more religious ways. He says, turn from all that in chapter 1, verse 17. And he says, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In other words, turning from sin and seeking God looks a lot like turning from your selfishness and seeking the welfare of the vulnerable. It looks a lot like care for the poor. Widows, orphans, immigrants, homeless people, single parents, elderly, people who are vulnerable in our society. So who do you know that's in in one of those conditions? Who do you know that's poor or homeless or single parent who does not have enough income? Immigrants, maybe some employees that you know. Some elderly who are really, really vulnerable. Something about seeking God looks a lot like intense care for these people. And I wonder why. In Matthew 23, he actually assigns value to some of the different things that we do to try to be Christians, to try to seek God. He's talking to the really religious people. And he says in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You tithe out of your spice rack. That's how carefully religious you are. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So think about the things we do to try to seek God. I need everybody to come back to me. I feel like I've bored you. Got to get back in my preaching rhythm. My voice isn't even used to it. It's after one week. Think about the things that you do to try to seek God. List them in your mind. Maybe a quiet time. Church attendance, you're here. Um, Maybe some service within the church. Prayer. Where does tithing fall? Giving. Usually, in this type of church, that's looked at as pretty important. Although, I don't know. I talked to Mike, our treasurer, this morning. Maybe not everybody's on that same page. But typically, that's looked at as very weighty, very important. Well, Jesus here is saying that that's like a gnat compared to the camel of caring for the vulnerable. And you could be great at tithing. You could give 30% of your income. You could be great at your quiet times. You could be great at coming to church and serving. But Jesus says those are like gnats. (laughs) Thank you very much. You could give a glass of ice water to your preacher as he's preaching. (laughs) And Jesus says that's all good, but those are like gnats compared to the camel of helping those who are vulnerable. It's really, really important. So why? I'm I'm just going to flip to the scariest passage about this. 
And we're just going to soak in something that Jesus said in Matthew 25. Why? I don't feel like I'm framing this as clearly as I want to. Whoa, sorry about all that. The Bible seems to indicate that if you're seeking God, you're helping the poor. And if you're not helping the poor, you're not seeking God. It seems to be a pretty clear indicator in the Bible. I'm trying to figure out why, because I know that works do not save us. We're saved by Jesus Christ. We can't be good enough to care for the poor to be saved. Why must it go together? There are plenty of non-Christians who do a lot of work to help those who are vulnerable. And yet they're not Christians. So why is it so connected? And I think the, the key is found in Matthew 25. And I'll read verses 31 through 46. This is one of the scariest passages in the Bible. Jesus says, in Matthew 25, starting at verse 31... When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away. Into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Is that not a deeply terrifying passage of Scripture? And can you picture it? I don't really know what it would look like, but when Jesus comes back, which he promised he would, that he will, in some form, all the nations will stand before him and he will separate them into two groups, like a shepherd separates. That's when a shepherd separates. It's called separating. <laughs> we'll separate the sheep from the goats, the blessed ones from the cursed ones, the Christians from the non-Christians, the saved ones from the unsaved ones, those who will be in God's kingdom and those who will be damned. So which group are you going to be in? 
how do you know? I get that question a lot. There's some insecurity about our salvation often. How do you know? Well, how does Jesus know? Yes, he knows your heart. So he just knows. So this passage is for our benefit. Well, it seems as though when Jesus makes the separation, he's not looking at church affiliation. He's not even looking at, did you repeat a prayer one time? Here he's not even looking at, did you get dumped underwater and raised back up one time? The way he can tell a sheep is a sheep because the sheep feed the hungry. The sheep water the thirsty. The sheep welcome strangers. Strangers probably means like immigrants or migrant workers or refugees, people from a different language, different culture who are here with no resources. The sheep clothe the naked. The sheep visit the sick and in prison. Now, the ghosts don't aggressively work against these vulnerable people. They just do not do those things. So, is he saying that doing those things saves us? Is that what he's saying? It can sound like that, but no, that does not fit with the rest of Scripture. What he's saying is not that that makes you a Christian. He's saying that that's what identifies you as a Christian. That is what a Christian looks like. A sheep looks white and fluffy. A goat has horns. I'm no expert in sheep and goats, but I think that's true. A Christian looks like someone who is concerned with and engaged in ministering to the vulnerable. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus has told us that our churches are full of both. The wheat and the tares. Sheep and the goat, we're all here together. Is so tied together that Jesus is teaching that opening your heart to the hungry is opening your heart to Jesus. He identifies himself completely with the vulnerable people. As you did to the least of these, you did to me. As you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. Rejecting the poor is rejecting Jesus. You cannot accept Jesus and reject the poor. It's totally incompatible. So back to my premise, seeking God includes seeking the welfare of those in need. Not seeking the welfare of those in need indicates a heart that's dead to God. So what is our relationship to the vulnerable, the poor, honestly? As a church, you as an individual. Because that's a clearer indicator of your relationship with Jesus than your general morality or your religious activity. And I find that kind of scary for myself and for our church. I think we have several kinds of people in here today. I think that some in here today are believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And that some of you are involved in ministering to the vulnerable. People in your family. that You're totally consumed with caring for them because they cannot care for themselves. Either because they're elderly or because they're a single parent because they're disabled and you are deeply involved in it and as you hear this you're just stirred up even further that yes this is the way it should be 
This is already your lifestyle, and this is just reinforcing it. I think some of you in here are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, and you're not yet engaged in this kind of ministry. And maybe for you, this is awakening something that is already deep down inside of you. And you feel like it's banging against the gates of your hearts to be unleashed in some specific way to start caring for the vulnerable. You just need to know how. And I'm thinking in the coming weeks, we're going to get more clarity on how. Uh, Raise your hand if you're here for the crisis assistance discussion. That was helpful, I thought. I'm glad you guys were able to make it. I actually spent a lot of time on my vacation reading books about this, the same books I gave away at the crisis assistance discussion. I'm learning a lot. Um, if this is you, if you are a believer, follower of Jesus Christ, you're not engaged with helping anybody who's vulnerable right now, but something inside of you is pounding to get out that, yes, you have a strong desire for this. Let me just say a few words to maybe bring a little clarity about how. We, the institutional church, Doolin's Grove, is mainly about making disciples. You're not caring for the needy, really, if you're not also trying to connect them to Jesus Christ. First and foremost, trying to connect them to God through Jesus Christ. That's what the church is designed mainly to do, the institutional church. We teach people, we baptize people so they can make it public. We help them grow. We give them resources to send them out to make disciples. That's our main game here at Doolin's Grove. Now, we also have the deacons and the deaconesses. Those are our care, uh, the two clearest groups for care for those who are vulnerable. The deacons fund, give to it if you're wondering how to get started. Where your money goes, there your heart follows. We help people who are vulnerable with the deacons fund. Um, We have the food pantry and the clothing closet. You can donate things. But more importantly, I think, than what we do as an institution is what we do as the organic church, some people call it. Basically, what you are when you're not sitting here in the pew. You're still the church. You're just out there on your own. That's where the action really needs to take place. Where we, the Christians, get out there and are concerned about people and are caring for people. Getting involved with existing organizations to volunteer and serve. Getting involved with your family, your neighbors, the people that you know. I want you to watch the website. I'm planning to put up a page just with opportunities to serve. Because I think many would serve if they just knew how. But I read many examples in these books. I read an example of a retired couple. They were blessed enough that they were able to retire and live pretty comfortably. They used their retirement to spend most of it overseas doing teaching and English as second language work with people and serving the most impoverished people on the globe. I read about an engineer who graduated from school, did great in school, chose a job at an engineering firm that paid less, but it did work that benefited those who were in need. So that's how it expressed itself in his life. I read about families that actually, when they looked where they would move, they moved into the poor neighborhoods. How many of you would move into the poor neighborhoods on purpose to become a part, to thread your life in with theirs, to serve people? I read about a woman who gave up her dream career at a law firm making huge money 
to work to benefit those who couldn't really pay but needed legal representation. I read about a car dealership owner. How many of you have bought cars before? There's always haggling. There's always negotiations. Um, Some people are better at it than others. If you think you're really good at negotiating a price down, raise your hand. It's not prideful. I think I'm pretty good at it. I've worked in sales for a long time, so I kind of know how it goes. I'm the only person in here that thinks they're any good. Okay, some ladies back there. Raise your hand if you know that you're not good at it, that you send your spouse in instead. All right, we're not very shrewd business people. That's okay. Well, there was a car dealership that realized, the owner realized that typically women are not as good negotiators as men. That's just what the research said. I don't necessarily think that. But typically, females are not quite as good. They don't get the prices low for themselves as men do. And within that group, typically African-American women from poor families are even worse. They don't feel like they have the right to come in and demand lower prices, so they just accept higher prices. So like single mom, poor women... We're having to pay more for cars. He realized his whole policy of how they sold cars was really oppressing a demographic that he needed to be helping. So he just changed his whole policy and said, no more negotiations. We're just going to go as low as we can. That's the bottom line. And it hurt his business some. It didn't help him. But that's how it expressed itself for him. Concern for the vulnerable. It can express itself in any number of ways. It's not just volunteering in a soup kitchen. Um, Now, there's some of you in here who are very, very moral people. You care deeply about morality. You care deeply that you act right, that your kids act right, that you avoid the bad things, that you do the good things. And while you have some warm feelings towards Jesus Christ, you may never have made a clear decision in your mind that, yes, he is who he says he is, and I will put all my faith in him and I will follow him. I will listen to his word. He's my Lord. And maybe all this feels like extra burden to you. Oh, I got to do more. I'm already sitting here listening to this guy go on and on and on. And now I got to go do more. I got to help the poor too. I already give my tithe and now I got to give more. And it just feels like more burden, more burden. Well, for you, don't worry about all of that. This stuff, helping the poor, is not a recipe for salvation. It's more the aroma of salvation. Have you ever walked into your kitchen and your spouse has been cooking and it just smells really good? Some of you are like, no. Does that happen? I thought it was just on TV. <laughs> That's, that aroma comes after the meal is prepared. That aroma doesn't lead to the meal. This, this helping the poor, this heart for other people, that's the aroma of a Christian. That's not the recipe for a Christian. Does that make sense? Think of it, I, I want you to avoid what I'll call Febreze Christianity. <laughs> Febreze is one of the worst products ever unleashed on the society. Have you seen the new commercials? All those commercials do is reinforce all the things I hate about Febreze. And they show unsuspecting people sitting in filth with blindfolds on, thinking it smells great. And they take the blindfolds off, and they're like, oh, I'm sitting in... Ah, I've got to be careful with the language I use preaching. Sitting in dog (laughs) dung. 
One of them actually had a filthy dog sitting beside the girl. I want you to avoid Febreze Christianity. Don't spray some help of the needy on top of your rotting life. <laughs> I know that's a stark way to say it, but that's what people do. People spray the fresh scent of going to church onto a rotting life. A heart that doesn't really love God. A heart that doesn't really care about other people. A heart that is just eaten up with anxieties and, and uh, inward darkness. But we put on our nice clothes and our ties and we smell fresh. But God sees beyond that. Like he said to the religious people, you polish the outside of the cup and it looks beautiful, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. I think I merged two different things that he said there. But they both meant the same thing. You who are moralists, you who care deeply about morals, but not so much about Jesus Christ, first, think clearly about Jesus. Do you believe in him or do you not? Is he really the Lord, everything, or is he some crazy guy or some historical fiction? Then these things will grow naturally. Then the aroma of this Christianity will will come. You'll care. First think about Jesus. Read about him. Ask your questions about Jesus. I am never going to like yell at you if you come to me and be like, you know... I've been at church for 50 years, but I don't think I really understand the gospel. Can you explain it to me? I'm not going to like splash my drink in your face and slap you and say, how dare you? I'm going to say, yes, I would love to talk to you about this. Come to me anytime. Ask your questions. Think clearly about them. Don't just settle for vague, fuzzy feelings about them. He's either everything or he's nothing. And then make your decision and we'll baptize you making it public and we'll start to feed into you and you'll start growing and this passion for God and people will start to burn out of control and you'll have to find a way to let it loose. Now some of you, maybe the moral aspect isn't so much your concern but the religious aspect of it is. Some of you are religious people who again have warm feelings towards Jesus but maybe not a clear devotion to him. You need to take the same route as the moralist that I just described. I remember asking, I've told you this before, but I remember asking a group that I was teaching how they envisioned heaven looking, what they thought would be going on there. You know, golden streets of gold and mansions and happiness, fat naked babies playing harps. But you know what they all missed? God. None of them even thought the fact that God would be there. When in reality, heaven is just God for eternity. We get God for eternity. But that kind of sounds boring to some folks. Those are the folks that don't know him. Those are the folks that are just caught in this, this religious cycle. Examine your hearts and use this question about how you feel toward the vulnerable and poor as a tool to examine your heart. Go to Jesus. Be transformed. Seek God. Serve the poor. I have this vision in my mind of what 
I feel that we're heading toward as a church. And I want all of you to be on board. I have this vision in my mind of this vibrant group of people growing. Not because of uh, marketing or my clever communications. Not that any of you were staking your hopes on that anyway, but... (laughs) A vibrant, growing community of people who really, really love God and really, really love people who are not in it for themselves, who are in it for other people and expressing itself in very specific, concrete ways of serving those in need, but all under the umbrella of making disciples. I want all of you to be on board with us on that. Every single one of you. There is no room for nominal Christians at any church. This is for all of us, and it's wonderful. This could be us. I think it will be us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how clear it is. I pray that uh, the truth of it would resonate in our hearts even after we leave here. And I pray that by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that uh, we would all be transformed into vibrant people that love you and love others. And that aroma of Jesus would be found here. That we would be a people who cannot help ourselves. We have to care for those who are vulnerable. Just show us how. In Jesus' name, amen.